The Lord likes to laugh at times. He's probably laughing like, do you think I'm watching the game? Yes, Lord. For our sakes. As you guys are in Titus 2, um, you should all be there. Uh, I want to stay on the theme of greatness, on greatness. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. Uh, and when we talk about greatness, what I really want to focus on is, well, I want to talk about the topic of a great church. And, and what does scripture call a great church? And how does the text define what a great church is? And that's what I want to just spend my time with you this morning doing. I, I want to start off in Titus 2, and then I'm going to eventually end off in Revelation chapter 2 and then verse 3 and chapter 3. And anytime we go to Revelation, you know it's going to be a good, good time. But, but we're going to jump into Titus 2, then to Revelation 2 and 3. And then in Titus 2, it's, it's very interesting. It's interesting because in the New King James, they decided to title it, if you have your Bible there open to uh, Titus 2, it's titled Qualities of a Sound Church. How many of your Bibles say that on the top in those, good, in those dark, bolded letters? You see that? Qualities of a Sound Church. That's what mine says. Okay? And, and, and I saw that, and I remembered this passage as I was thinking about what is a great church? How is a, great, how is a church able to walk in greatness? I remembered uh, the book of Titus and Paul's letter to this church, especially in chapter 2. And I remembered that the qualities of a sound church, as New King James um, titles it. If you're taking notes, I'll give you some key things that you should write down. One of them is, what does that word sound mean? When it says, the qualities of a sound church... In this uh, text, as we read these verses, you're going to see that a word that is used more than once is the word sound, okay? And that word sound has no real, um, uh, it has no, it has no, it does not mean to hear or the sound of hearing, none, none of that, okay? The word sound there in the Greek, and you can write this down, it means this, and I'm going to go back to this a lot today. It's to be whole. It is to be healthy, to be well, okay? Whole, healthy, and well. And that's what that word sound means there. The qualities of a, now let's substitute that for a second. The, the qualities of a, ready? Whole, healthy, and well church. The, the truth is, as I was, I, was, I was getting ready to just study Titus and study Revelation, I started to think about different churches that I've been to, churches where I've pastored, even our church. And I've been to, to uh, what you would call mega churches, right? Mega churches that are alive, that are vibrant, that the Holy Spirit is moving and it's powerful. And I've been to mega churches that is just dead. There are thousands among thousands in the seats that fill in every hour, but yet there is no life in those churches. I've hit two extremes. I've gone to small churches like ours, and I've seen small churches like ours, I mean, vibrant, and the Holy Spirit moving. And then I've been small churches like ours, and I've seen it dead. So the number of your church and how many people you bring in, it does not define whether your church is alive or dead. Amen? And we need to understand that today. Because you could be bringing in a thousand people, but I'll tell you what, I'll take 10 alive people over a thousand dead people. If you don't believe me, study Gideon. I'm about to go to war. God says, now with those thousands, so then with who? I'm going to bring you down to 300. I'm going to war against a hundred thousand men with just 300. And God's like, yeah, because they're dead. You're alive, Gideon. And when we look at a church, we need to understand that we need to be very careful how we define what is a living church and a great church, a church of greatness. We need to understand that. A church that is great, I truly believe it's a sound church. It is a church, listen, that is whole, that is healthy, and that is well. Did you notice what I just said? I didn't even use the word wealthy. Because some of the greatest churches in the world on planet Earth are underground persecuted churches that meet in the dark with a candle lit. And those are some of the most spirit-filled, powerful, anointed churches in the world. Did you know that? So, so I'm, not even, I'm not even talking about wealth today. Healthy. I'm going to go to it a lot. Whole and well. And that's a great church. I'm going to jump into the text with you. 
And it's more of a study. I might end up preaching in it, but it's more of a study in it. And I want to focus on verse 1 as Paul writes. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this. But as for you, you speak the things which are proper, and he says, which are proper for sound doctrine. He, he starts off chapter 2 in this manner. Church, sound church, well church, whole church, healthy church. When you speak these things, you, you speak things which are proper for sound doctrine. As we stop in verse 1, we can truly say that there are many people, many lives, listen to what I'm going to tell you, whose deeds disprove the claim to know God. Can we not admit that? There are so many people that, you know, they wear, they wear the dog tag, right? And in their dog tag, it'll, this is not a, it's a dog tag, but it doesn't say my religion on it. On the dog tag, it'll say, you know, Christianity and all that. And there are many people that claim to know God, but their deeds disprove the one whom they claim. And we've seen that. So what is Paul telling the sound church here? What is he explaining to the church? What he's telling the church is this. Listen, the way that you speak, the way that you live out your lives, look at verse 1. You affirm, you affirm rather than you deny the claim to know God. So that your very own vocabulary and the way that you word your life and speak about your life and with others and live out your life before others, let it not deny but affirm who you know if you say you know God. I love how he starts it off because that right there is, is a healthy church. That right there is a, is a great church because we could just grab verse 1 and we could just go from there and preach a whole sermon. I'm not going to do that sake of time and and all that. But think about that. Affirming him who we claim. And that's what a church that is great is all about. A church that is great affirms the one that they claim. So look what Paul goes into as we read verses. I'm going to go through um, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Ready? 2, 3, 4, and 5. Watch this. So he's going to address some men. He's going to address some women, some older men, some older women. Watch what he says. And then we'll go into it verse by verse. He says, listen, let the older men, let them be sober, reverent, temperate, sound. I like this, sound. There's the word sound. Sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Those commas mean sound in love, sound in faith, and sound in patience. It's, sound does not just end in faith there. You guys know that, right? He's talking about let the men of the church... Let them be healthy, well, and whole in their faith, in their love, and even in their patience. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Then he goes on and he says, And the older women, he's not calling you old, he's calling you older women. He says, likewise. So what does he mean by likewise? Just like the, just like the men. Just like the men. So let's see what he taps into with the women. Be reverent in behavior. Do not be slanderers. Do not give to, I love how he uses the wordage, too much wine. Teachers of, of good things that, that, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Look at verse 5. To be discreet and chaste, homemakers. I love that, not home wreckers. Homemakers. Good and obedient to their own husbands, to the word of God. That they would, oh sorry, and that the word of God may not be what? Yeah, I like that. I want to go into these verses. Here you have a letter written to the church. To a church that is called to be great. Not a church that is called to be mediocre. Not a church that is just hoping to get by. It's a church that is to live in greatness. We know that because he calls it a sound church. And as he calls it a sound church, he, he begins to pick on some of the people that make up the church. And as he begins to highlight on some of the people, he says, men. Everyone say men. Yeah. And then he, he begins to go over some disciplines that men are supposed to have. And then he looks to the left and he says, women. Everyone say women. And he goes over some disciplines in the women's life that they need to have. So here's Paul, and he begins to instruct men and women. 
As we look at this, look what he tells the men. Everyone, you can put your eyes right back on the text. He tells them this. He's basically saying, men, you exercise self-control. Exercise self-control. I love reading the Bible and watching and reading and focusing on its wordage. Because what does he say to do with self-control? For the one person that's reading with me today. Exercise. Think about this. He didn't just say what? Have self-control. He didn't say have self-control. But the word that he uses is the word what? You exercise. Another way of saying that is what? You work it out. You practice it. You, you work it out. You exercise self-control. He says that to the men. And the reason why I find that interesting is because it does not mean that it's always going to appear or to be there. Instead, Paul says what? Self-control has to be what? It's got to be exercised. It's, it's got to be worked out. Listen, you exercise self-control and you look at this text and you say, well, Paul, why do I have to exercise self-control? And Paul looks at the believers at the sound church and says, so that you don't lose it. How many of you have, don't even raise your hand. How many have lost it? Don't raise your hand. How many of you have lost it? Come on. You've lost it at home. You've lost it within the brethren in the church. I know people that have texted me, and they decide I'm not coming back to the church because so-and-so is a... And I'm like, whoa, you don't go to church for so-and-so. How many of you have lost your control? You've just lost it. You've lost it on the children. You've lost it on the wife. You've lost it on the brother in the front. You've lost it on the sister in the back. You lost it because you didn't like the way they spoke to you. Or you lost it on your boss because who does she? And you just lost it. And Paul says this to the church. Ready? You exercise. You work it out. What is he telling them? You be, he says here in the text, you be worthy of respect. Watch what he says. You live wisely. Be sound in your faith. And be filled with love and patience. What do you mean? Let your love, let your faith, and let your patience, men of the church, be well, be whole, and be what? You guys remember the third one? Well, whole, and? And, yeah, what's the other one? Healthy. Healthy, whole, and sound. And he's addressing the men here. And he says, you want to be a great church, then the people that make up the church, you need to live a life that is worthy of respect. Watch. You need to live wisely. I remember putting my, my finger down because now we type everything. And as I was putting my finger down from typing, I started to think about the world we live in. And do we not live in a world that has lost its wisdom? In a world where wisdom is not evident. Instead, we're, we're living in a time where we're darkened in ignorance, are we not? We're living in a time where even the church of Christ, those that proclaim to be the church, even we, the church, has, have just been darkened in ignorance at times. And, and here's Paul, and Paul does not say to be darkened in your ignorance. Paul says, you work out self-control, you live it out, you exercise it, because if you don't, you're going to lose it. And as you do not lose it and you gain self-control, you need to live worthy of respect, live wisely. This is how important because if we say that Christ is in a great church, in a great people, think about that. What does the Bible say? The wisdom of Christ. Okay? It starts with the fear, the beginning of the fear of man. Okay, so if we fear God, then the wisdom of Christ is in the church's life and is in our lives. And Paul writes to the church and he says, church of greatness, you live worthy of respect. You live wisely and you live healthy, whole, and well in your faith, in your love, and in your patience. And then he turns to the women. The women are hitting the men in the church. See, I told you, you lost it yesterday. Some of you right now, when I said, how many of you have lost it at home? Some of you right now thought about some of the men that you're with. I'm, not that you're with, the men that you're here with. But then he looks at the woman, he says, ladies, and all the ladies say, yeah. And Paul says, i got to talk to you too. And look what Paul tells the women of the church that is called to be great. In verse 4, he says, you admonish. You admonish. You know what that word means, the word admonish? It means to train. It literally means to, 
to teach, to give instruction. So he says, now you live in a way that honors God. Look what he tells the women. You do not slander others. You're not called to be heavy drinkers. Instead, you teach others what is good. You're training others. You, you love your husband. You love your children. You, you also live, what do you, what do you think? You also live what? Want to take a guess? You live in ignorance. You also live in what? What does he tell the women? You also live in wisdom. He says, you live wisely and you be pure. You work in your homes. You work good at your homes just like you do at your jobs. And you're called to do good, to be submissive to your husbands. And then he says something in verse 5. I want everyone to look at verse 5 with me. Go to verse 5. He says that the word of God, what does he say next? May not be blasphemed. When you look at verse 5, what Paul is saying is this. Church, the way you live your lives, let it be in such a way that you will not bring shame to the word of God and to God himself. And, and, I, and I read that scripture and I think about greatness, and I think about what it means to be a church that is living in greatness. And Paul is addressing the men and the women who make up the church. And he's giving us some insight of what we are to do to be great. And as he's telling us what to do, he, he ends talking to the men and women by saying this. You do all these things so that the word of God will not be blasphemed. So that you will not bring shame to the word of God. And he's almost saying to the church, you want to be a great church, right? And the whole church says, yes, Paul, of course, right. We want to be a great church. And you know what Paul says to them? That it begins and it starts with you. And that's powerful. I mean, how many of us have, have heard the joke where, where, where someone says, I'm looking for that perfect church, right? And when they go find that perfect church, what happens to it? As soon as they walk in, the church becomes what? We know that. It becomes imperfect. Because I know that the day I... Even going pastor a perfect church. That the day that I go and even pastor that perfect church, starting with me, I've lost all credibility to be perfect. Because I alone am not perfect. And you alone, we are not perfect. And Paul is telling them, you want to be a great church, then it starts with us, the people of God, to become great by living by these truths, by living by these principles. And look at verse 6 with me as we get into this text. He says this, Likewise, now you are to exhort, you exhort the young men, you be sober-minded. And I read that, and he looks at the word exhort, and you start to recognize this word and, and what it means. And what he's teaching the church is, the church body, when you look at it, it's a well-run, some people will call it a well-run machine. I don't think it's a well-run machine. When you study scripture, the church is a well-run organism. And that's what it's called to be. And why is the church a well-run organism? organism the reason why the church is a well-run organism and called to be great is because the holy spirit should be working in it and through it and as paul is making this point he tells them in verse six you teach others you exhort others look what he tells them in verse six to be sober minded i looked up the word sober minded and it means this to live guess what it means to live wisely what do you think Paul was telling the church? You guys are not what? You're not wise. We've just read six verses. And I think I mentioned it three or four times already. Where Paul continues to tell them, man, can you live wisely already? When I read texts like that, I start to recognize that Paul's making a point to the church. And he's recognizing that the way that you will be sound, healthy, well, and whole have to be wise you gotta live wisely you gotta teach others how to be sober-minded you gotta teach others how to be live wisely and how to be self-controlled and we get into this and Paul is gonna open up now from verses 7 through 10 look what he says I'm gonna read them real quick and then I'll explain them he says in all these things show yourself show yourself to be a pattern of good works and I'm going to go back to this. In, in doctrine, showing integrity and reverence, incorruptibility. Look at verse 8. He tells the church, church, have sound speech that, that cannot be condemned. 
That, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. Verse 9, exhort the bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things. Not answering back. Everyone say amen for that one. Yeah, that's good. And 10, not pilfering, but, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 are powerful verses. In verse 7, he's literally telling the church, be a moral example. Be a moral example so that others, what do you mean by others? The believers inside the church, the new believers that are coming to the church, and most importantly, to those that are outside of the church, church of greatness, be of moral example. May they see the relationship between sound doctrine and good deeds. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share on that. What is Paul saying? We, we say we believe in the word of God. We say we know the word of God. We pray the word of God. We quote the scriptures. And, and Paul is saying this. In verse 7, he says, You live as a moral example so that others who look into your life would be able to see the relationship that the great church has between sound doctrine and their very own deeds. What do you mean? That the way that the great church lives is according to the great word of God. And that's what Paul is highlighting in the text. He says, if you say that this is your doctrinal stance, if you say that this is what you live by, if you say that this text is living, it's powerful, and it is the foundation of your life, if you say that what it says in this book is real, if you really believe the prophecies of this book, the fulfillments of this book, the laws of this book, the morals of this book, then you know what he says? He says, make sure your deeds are lined with it. Show moral behavior. That's what we're called to be. I'm called to be, listen, the church does not just start with a group. It starts with a person. And when one person gets with another person, the Lord says, man, how good is it for brethren to get together in unity? Verse 7. Let your life, let your deeds, that when others see it, they would see that it's in relationship with this book. Hey, how many of you are called to be a sound church? How many of you are called to be living in wellness, in wholeness, and healthy in Christ Jesus your Lord? I pray that all of you would say me. Me. And if you say me today, I'm going to tell you right now that a great church, a sound church, our lives are in deep relationship with this book. If you are not in relationship with this book, can I be honest with you? Aren't you struggling right now? How many of you, don't raise your hand again. How many of you are struggling? I mean, really struggling in your faith. I mean, it's hurting you struggling. How many people come in and walk out and we don't see them again because they're struggling? And then the true answer in the struggle is they're not in what? They're not in relationship with the book. When this just becomes a historical book written to us, it loses its power. But when this becomes the very heart, thought, and hand of God written out for our lives, then it becomes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit living in us. You know, I started to look at my life, and I've recognized that some of my, the points of my life where I am the weakest, farthest away from God is because I've neglected my relationship with my doctrine. And God has to remind me and say, do you know why you're struggling? Do you know why the old man has risen up again? Do you know why you're not great today? And I start to examine my life and God reminds me the way Paul is reminding the early church is because your life is not in relationship with my book. You see, I, I want to say this and I want to say it twice just so you could get it. And please listen to what I'm about to tell you. You are not who you are by what you do. You do what you do because of who you are. The great Ravi Zacharias says that all the time. 
You are not who you are because what you do. You do what you do because of who you are. And church, Paul is telling this church to live in greatness, and he says the way you live in greatness is you be moral example and your lives are in relationship. Look at verse 8 and 9. He goes on and he begins to talk about sound speech. He goes on and he begins to talk about so that one who is an opponent of yours would be ashamed because they have nothing evil to say about you. He goes on and he says, you exhort others to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. He goes on and he says, but showing good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in Jesus. Let's look at this. What he's telling the great church here is this, you don't answer back. You, you, you're not called to live, you know anyone like this? You're not called to be an argumentative person. For everything, there's a fight. For everything, you pick on something. You, you're not called to have bitter speech. You, you, you're not quick to point out the negative in people. Have you ever been there? Man, I've hung out with people like that. Man, you just hang out five minutes and everything is negative about that person. Man, I, saw their Insta- I saw their Facebook. I saw their Instagram. And, and I'm like, shut up. You're giving me a headache. And everything about people are negative and negative and they look at the negative. Listen, listen. If you really put a magnifying glass in me, you'll probably see more negative than you'll ever see more positive. And, and that's the, the God honest truth. And, and, and how many people put the magnifying glass on others and, and all they highlight and all they point out is the negative. Well, well, Paul says this, you don't have bitter speech. You don't quick to point out the negative in people. But instead, what does he tell them in 89? A great church lifts up others. You lift up others in their good. You strengthen them in their weaknesses. You don't say words that will cause hurt and sever relationships. How many of you relationships that you were strong in have been severed because of words that were spoken against you. Powerful words. No one punched you. No one hurt you. No one even laid a hand on you. But their words were more powerful than any physical strike against you. And the words caused damage to sever relationships. Well, Paul says this, a great church does not speak like that about anyone. Instead, you lift up the weak. You don't hurt others with your words. You, what does he tell them? You have sound speech. You, you what? You speak well. You're, you're, the way that you speak is healthy and whole and well. As a great church, you, you exhort one another. What do you mean by this? That we urge. The word exhort there. That we urge, that we advise, that we caution. Listen. That we even warn one another. But as we advise and caution and warn it is done in a way which is sound and biblical it is healthy it makes us well and it makes the church whole man and that's what god is speaking to the church the way that you live the way that you speak the way that you think it's got to be changed and then in verse 10 he says we adorn the doctrine off the top of your head, now you could talk back to me. Ready? Off the top of your head, the word adorn, what does that word mean? A decorate. Place on. Good. Anyone else? Those are two good ones. I don't even know if you could come up with another one. Beautify. That's a good one. Beautify. Look, look what Paul says. Adorn the doctrine in verse 10. Of God in all things. I looked up the adorn. The doctrine, what do you mean? The adorn, the teachings of God, church, in all the things that you do. And, and I wrote this in my notes. We, we decorate, we adorn his teachings. What it's saying is this, that a great church, a great church can be fully trusted so that in every way they make the teachings about God and their Savior attractive. Do you know that when Jesus walked People say, oh, he fell. Come on. How many? I gave it away. How many people did he feed with the five loaves and two fish? Yeah, 5,000. It's completely wrong. In those days, they counted the men. If they were to count everyone, it was about 20,000 people. That is more than the Miami, oh, my God, the triple A fits in a heat game. If Jesus was not attractive, then what do you call that? What do you call that? Because I've never walked out of an arena 
and said, follow me. And I've had 20,000 people say, hey, Regal's here. Let's follow him. I'm just not that cool. I'm just not that attractive. There's nothing really that good in me. But there was something about Jesus that when he walked into a city and he spoke a parable, or when he did a miracle, a sign, or a wonder, and he walked out of that village, his disciples said, Jay, have you looked back yet? And he says, what is it? He says, there's about 20,000 people following us in this wilderness, and they're hungry, and they're starving, and they're chasing us. And Jesus looks back and says, wow. And he is moved because they're like a sheep without, without a shepherd. And he tells them, sit down. I'm going to feed them. And he begins to care for them. As I read this, I started to think about the life of Jesus. And I said, Jesus was nothing else but attractive to people. Guess what? Even to sinners. Because Jesus never ate dinner at a Pharisee's house. Every time that Jesus ate dinner, it was at a thug of his time's house. He hung out with the sinner of sinners. And you know what the religious church people began to do to Jesus? When he hung out with the, with the most grimiest, ugliest, sick people of his time, they watched him through the window still. And they said, I can't believe that such a holy man dines with such sinners. I want to use wisdom in how I say this. But in your Christianity, if all you attract is godly people, there's something wrong with your Christianity. I'm being very honest. There should be something about you that people that do not have Jesus want. I want what you have. That's a healthy church. That's a church that is well. That's a church that is healthy. That is a church that is whole. I thought about a Christmas tree, you know. It's resting in its stand and it's admired. This year we, we took my son and we said we're going to take our first Christmas pictures as a family. We went to a tent that sells Christmas trees. What was that for, man? I had suspenders and a long sleeve, and you all know that in December, a couple weeks before Christmas, it's not even cold here, it is hot, and I have these jeans on actually, and I have these nice shoes and high socks and a shirt, long sleeve with suspenders. My son is matching me, my wife in a dress, and we're sitting on the grass, and, and there's Christmas trees all behind us in this beautiful red and white tent with lights like this all around there. We said, this will be a beautiful scenery for Christmas pictures. And we see Christmas trees on their stands and we admire them we even do family portraits around them but then i started to think about a christmas tree resting in its stand that's not just there bland and empty just to be admired listen but then there's a christmas tree that when it's taken home it's placed in its stand and then it's adorned and then as, it, as it's adorned you know it's decorated like our sister said beautified it's decorated in its beauty and it's pleasing to eyes, to those who look upon it. How many of you have been to a house and you see an amazing Christian? Wow, what a tree. Where'd you get it? It's so big. Whoa. And then have you noticed that nowadays people are competing with other people's trees? We got to all do them. What do you mean? I'll do it. Since when? And, 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 and you look at this beautiful, adorned, decorated tree and what is it it is attractive why is it attractive it represents the season that it oh man that's good it represents the season of christmas and when we live out our lives as a healthy well and whole church we need to be like the christmas tree that shines the light not a normal physical light but the light of christ that everyone that does not know him when they see it they are attracted to us and that we would represent him whom we claim that's who we're called to be not christmas trees but we're called to be the attractive church of christ a great church I want to be living in greatness. And the way that I live in greatness is to be adorned. Guess what I have to be adorned with? Guess what are the ornaments that I have to stick on my tree? I love buying the tree. I love bringing in the tree. I hate decorating the tree. Nancy loves it. You want to know why? I hate untangling lights. They take hours. I hate it. But man, when it's done, isn't it beautiful? But guess what we decorate our lives with? It's a pain at times. 
It's discipline at times. There's a lot of untangling. You got to untangle stuff that, that applies to you. And when we adorn our lives, we adorn it with his words, we adorn it with his teachings, that we would become attractive to the eyes who look upon us. And that is a great church that we will represent, that we will affirm him whom we claim. That's it. How many of you can say amen? You can give God a praise. God will receive it. I should have preached this message during Christmas, but, and then he goes on, and I read all these verses 1 through 10, and I say, well, how is this possible? How can I do all this? How can I be this great church? Ready? Ready? Let's read text. Go to verse 11 with me. How can you become a great church? Watch verse 11. Because the grace of God, I'm going to change it so that it can mean towards you. I'm not going to substitute the word of God. I'm not going to add or take away from the word of God. So don't ever think I'm doing that. What I'm doing right now is I'm going to change the wordage that it could be applied directly to you. Okay, so when it, when it says us, I mean them, it's going to be us. Watch, watch, just watch. How can I become a great church? Lord, how can I live in such a way that I could speak like this and live like this and adorn myself in this way? And then Paul says in verses 11 through 15, oh, how? For the grace of God. For the grace of God that has brought salvation and has appeared to you. That's how. Verse 12. And it's taught us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It's taught us to live soberly and righteous and, and even godly in this present age. And in 13 he says, and now you're, you're called to do what? To look for the blessed hope. Your life now is waiting, the glorious appearing for our great God, Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's the one who gave himself for us, for the great church that we now are redeemed from every lawless deed and we are purified he purified us for himself why did he purify the church for himself can anyone answer it no but Paul could because now we are his own special people and we are zealous zealous for good works we're passionate to be good listen we're not passionate to do evil and to fulfill our lust and and to get and receive the the desires of our eyes and the pride of life Paul says what you are passionate for good works now how can I be passionate with good works, T? Easy, because you adorn yourself with the word of God. And if the word of God is in you, then you are going to want to live out the word of God. And you're going to be passionate to see the word of God manifest in your life. You're zealous for good works. And then he goes on and he says this. And you speak these things. And you exhort these things. Even rebuke these things with all authority. I love this part. 15. And let no one what? Let no one despise you. That's how. That's how you become a great church. By, by living out these things. Look what's happened in verses 11 through 15, which is the reason why you can live verses 1 through 10. Don't you love how Paul worded it? He did not start with verses 11 through 15 first because he knows how people think. What he did was he saved verses 11 through 15 at the end of his passage there. And he says, you need to be like verses 1 through 10. And you're looking at it and that's impossible to be like verses 1 and 10. And he says, it's not impossible to be verses 1 through 10 when you've experienced verses 11 through 15. For some of us, it's impossible to be great because we've never experienced the greatness of God. And that's what God's called us for. God's called us to be great because he alone is God's called us to be holy because he alone is a great church, a well church, a healthy church, a whole church. Greatness. Become this great church. And I love how he says this. And let no one despise you. You want to know why? Because you are the bride of Christ, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How many of you could say amen? And then, I'm not going to get ready to end, but in a few minutes I am. Before I end, I want to go to Revelation. Come, come with me. Flip over to the end of the book. And turn to chapter 2 in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, I love this. Uh, Pastor Leo spoke about it, so I'm not going to repeat his message. But I'm going to jump into the text that he shared. But I'm going to go a different route than he did. And in chapter 2 of Revelation, we're going to find ourselves in an interesting place. Let me explain to you what's happening here. Jesus writes a letter, and in his let letters, and he writes seven letters. Everyone say seven. Okay, that's important. 
He writes seven letters to seven churches. Okay? These seven letters to these seven churches, watch this. Six out of the seven churches had negative connotations to them, like negative names. Let's go over some of these churches. Ready? In, in chapter uh, 2, we see there's one called the what? The Loveless Church. Hey, if you're going to start a church and, hey, I'm going to start a church plant. Awesome. What are you going to name your church? Loveless. We're, we're just the Loveless Church. Not a good name. How about the Loving Church? He's like, no, dear Loveless Church. And then he, he goes on to the next one and he, he says there's also another one called the Compromising Church. Imagine that. Your first day of service. We welcome all of you to the Compromising Church. We compromise the things of this world. What? He names another one, the Corrupt Church. Great name. Welcome to Corrupt Church International Ministries. We're going to worship today. And then he says, not only the Corrupt Church. This is a great one. Ready? The Dead Church. Who's going to go visit a church called Dead? The Dead Church. And he breaks all these things. Ready? The Lukewarm Church. Welcome to Lukewarm Ministries. Where we're not on fire for God and we're not also cold. We're just right in the middle, right where you want to be. What? The lukewarm church. These are real cities and towns with churches in it, and he's making a point to these people. And then he goes on, he says, the persecuted church. Oh, God's people say, amen, I want to be persecuted for Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. You should want to, but you know you don't. You're not inside. The persecuted church has a negative connotation as well, though, though it's positive, though it might sound negative, it's pos positive. The negative church, he goes on, he says, I, I will bless you. You're going to enter tribulation and poverty, but remember this, you're always rich. Though you're poor, you're rich. You're going to suffer, the devil is going to put you in prison and he's going to test you. But then he tells the tribulation, the persecuted church, he says, but unto death you remain faithful. Because I'm going to give you a crown of life. But I'm not going to preach on that one. And then we get to the positive church. Ready? The one that has the true positive name. Anyone know the name of it? He goes, the faithful church. And like, that's a good church name. Like, that's good. Welcome to faithful church. And you're like, ah, my faith needs to grow. And in the faithful church, in verses 7 through 13, we're going to read this passage together. He says, these things says he who is holy, who is true. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Verse 8. I know your works, church. I set before you an open door. No one can shut it, for you have little strength. You've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And I will make those of the synagogue of Satan say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them and come and worship before your feet. I'm going oh to bring them to you. And to know that I have loved you. Look at verse 10. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may, may take your crown like that. Verse 12. I, I was watching the, 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 the races yesterday. On TV, and I was watching the Belmont. Man, I was so mad. I got a headache because I'm watching and I'm screaming, Come on, anyone know about the Belmont? No, I'm just losing everyone. Right? Never mind. There was a, a dog. There was, they look like big dogs, but whatever. The horse called California Chrome. He's amazing. He's about to hit the triple crown. Hasn't been done in 30 plus years since 1978. And I'm, and I'm there, and I waited like two hours for this. I even recorded it, and I'm sitting in front of my TV, and I'm, eat, and I'm, I'm on, online, and I'm, and I'm studying the triple crown and what it means. And I, and I learned that it, it's the, 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 the three main graces, and if you win all three, you get the triple crown. Duh. And all, I mean, I was just so into it for those two hours. And, and when, it, when it happened, I even texted my dad with the sadness, and, and I'm there. And I'm watching in front of my TV. My niece is there. My son's running around. My wife's there. My mother, everyone's there. And as, as I'm there looking at the TV, the race is starting. And I'm screaming, come on, California Chrome. Come on, Chrome. And I'm filled with such anxiety because I want California Chrome to win something that hasn't been won in 30-something years. I fell in love with the rider. He was such a cute little man. And, and, he, and he rides a jockey. And I, and I just wanted him to win. And I'm screaming, come on, California Chrome. Come on, California Chrome. And my niece is looking at me and says, Theo, you're going crazy. You're going, no, we need him to win. Come on, Chrome. Come on, Chrome. When they hit their last quarter, it's about a mile and a half. It's the longest track in, in the horse racing world. And as he hits the Belmonts, the last quarter, 
California Chrome is known for always coming back at that moment and taking off and winning the race. He's done it in the last six. He's won the last six races. He's a, he's a beast. But man, yesterday he was struggling. He was tired. He was struggling. And I was screaming and I, I was filled with so much emotion for this horse that doesn't even know me and I don't even know him. For this cute little rider that I, I don't remember his name today. And I'm there and when it ends and he loses, I remember everything inside of me just got taken out and I sat down. My, my, my niece looks at me and says, Theo, you're weird and you're crazy. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, I have such a headache. And I felt like vomiting. I had a headache. And I said, I don't even know about horses. <laughs> and I got so emotionally involved in this horse winning this triple crown. I got so mad. Because a horse that didn't even race in the other races... They put him into this race. And he's fresh legs. He's fresh. He's not sore. The other one has busted his butt off for the last six races in three weeks. He's raced like five times. I mean, this guy's an animal, this horse. He really is an animal. <laughs> Take my word for it. He's an animal. And they added this one horse. I Look at this. I could care less about him. I forgot his name. Remember his name? Yeah, exactly. Torino or Tortino. I don't know. Tortillas. And he wins, and the owner's there, and they're giving him this big, he couldn't even carry it. And I'm there, and I'm sad, and I'm like, that should be California Chromes. And I started to think about it. And I said, that's exactly how the Spurs felt last year when the Heat took their championship. Yeah, we got it from them. And I started to think about the trophy. And I said, the crown belongs to California Chrome. But in the time where he needed to perform, in the time where he needed to persevere the most, in the time where he needed to put most effort, in the time where he couldn't give up, where he couldn't just die out, the time where he really needed to go for the prize that is promised to him, at that moment he said, I can't. I've had enough. And someone else took the crown that should have been his from the story that was written for him. And I got sad because I said, man, it would have been so beautiful to see those people win that. That hasn't been won since 1978. And I remembered what I was going to preach today. And God tells the faithful church, he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. So you hold fast to what you have so that no one would take your crown. You know what happened to California Chrome? He didn't hold fast to what was his. Can I tell you what happened to the Spurs last year? I'm going to be real. And I'm glad that they did this in Miami. They began to put yellow tape of victory around the court. They saw the trophy rolled out. And they thought they automatically won. But they didn't recognize whether there's one minute left on that clock, whether there's 30 seconds left. This game is not over. Spurs, all you got to do is win one more game. You got to win for 30 more seconds. That's all we're asking. You got to hold fast to what's yours. You see it. I thank the organization, if the Miami Heat told them to start doing that, I thank them for doing that because I think that got into their head. And they thought they automatically won. But then something happened with Ray Allen and Chris Bosh. And they said, you know what? I know that they think they deserve this crown. And I know that the red tarp, the red tarp has, been, has been placed on the ground for them to walk on. Everyone could scream royalty and, and give them their crown. But Ray Allen looked at everything. And Chris Bosch looked at the whole scenario. And he said, but I don't think so. And Ray Allen got the ball and he shot a three. And Chris Bosch, for the first time that year, jumped and he got a rebound. And they won a game. And did you notice at the end of that game something happened to their faces? And something happened to the Spurs' faces? The Spurs still had one more game, one more chance to win it. But when I saw their faces, I said, there's no way the Spurs are going to win game seven now. We sucked the life out of them. You want to know what happened to the Spurs? They did not hold fast to that which they had. And the last couple seconds, they opened up a door of opportunity for their enemy which we think is a very godly and great enemy. 
You guys know I'm joking, okay? They walked in and took what could have been, what should have been theirs, but it was denied to them because they did not hold. You want to know what a great church does? A great church holds fast. Look at verse 12. It says, he who overcomes, and I'm, and, and I'm going to end now in, in about maybe three minutes. Man, I was like angelic. That was good. We've been practicing this for six years. Got it. That was good. Everyone give a hand for Danny. That was good, man. That was good. I said, we're going to end in about three minutes. And I went like that and boom, that was good. Could have been scripted of how good it was. But watch this. He who overcomes. California Chrome did not overcome. The San Antonio Spurs did not overcome. And they will not overcome. They, they did not overcome. And look what he says. He who overcomes. You want to know who overcame? Tortilla, tortilla chips won yesterday. Tortilla chips overcame. You know who won last year? The Miami Heat won. And you could say things. Oh, it's so rigged. And it's, no, no, no. Listen. Shove all that stuff away. Because the Heat did not win because of all those excuses. The Heat won last year because they overcame in a way that no other team would have probably been able to overcome. And the reason why that horse won yesterday is because it overcame in a way that no other horse probably would have overcome. And the way that a great church overcomes is because there's no other way that any other body of people will be able to overcome. But the pride of Christ that is filled with the Holy Spirit of God can overcome. And Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will make them. And I like that because I like to be made something great. I'm tired of being small and filthy and dirty and rotten and nothing very specific or great about me. But Jesus says, Rigo, if you overcome, if you remain faithful, if you stay great, I will make you. And I said, well, what will you make me? Because I want to know what I want to be made into. And God says, this is what I'm going to make you. Look what he says. I will make you a pillar. A pillar in my temple. And you will go out no more. You're here forever. And he goes on and he says, I will write on you the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem. And it will come down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on you my new name. And he who has an ear. I have an ear, God. Then Regal. Let yourself hear this. Hear this, what I'm saying, what the Spirit is saying to the church. I want to be a great church. I want to be a great church that doors are opened, and that's special. Because the reason why doors are opened, it represents opportunities. But better than opportunities, you want to know what I believe? Why doors are opened in Revelation chapter 3? I believe that doors are opened. Because now that means that a great church now has full access to their God at any time that they want. Is that even biblical? It is biblical because Jesus says, I am the doorway to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will go to the Father but through me. Do you want to know when Jesus says, I open the door and no one can shut it and it remains open? Do you want to know who Jesus was talking about? He was talking about himself. They can't shut me down. I stay open. Jesus stays open for you. Not us. We close ourselves to him. You bother me, I close myself off to you. I love you, I open myself to you. That's how we are. We're made like that. But Jesus says, I open the door. And no one can shut it. Church, great church, there's nothing that stops you from coming to God. Jesus is, and he sets the open door before the great and faithful church. No one can shut it. And he says, you're not perfect. You have little strength. I like that. It gives me hope. Because no one in this room is perfect. Can I get an amen? That's probably the best amen you've said today from the gut. And he says, but though you're not perfect, you have little strength. But you've done some things, church. I know you're not perfect. Can I, can I give you some encouragement? You're not perfect. So stop trying to live to be perfect. We're going to walk out these doors. And in about five minutes, 
some of us five seconds we're going to recognize how imperfect we really are we're going to walk out we're going to start to gossip and the person next is going to hit us we're just punched on that gossiping like that's right i'm so imperfect and you're going to be remembered that so listen if you're sitting here today and you recognize that you're not perfect don't bask in that say yeah i can live like this amen but there's hope for you there's hope for me of little strength because though we're not perfect and though we have little strength look what god says it never stopped you from keeping my word i know i'm not perfect but in my imperfections i've never let go of god's word and i don't plan to at any moment either i don't i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but whatever happens tomorrow i'm going to walk into it with the word of god in my heart and i don't know what's going to happen in a year from now but i'm going to walk into it with god's word in my heart and i might not be perfect and i might show a little strength but he says you've kept my word you have not denied my name you have command you have kept the command to persevere and because of this i will keep you from the hour of trial behold i am coming quickly hold fast to that which you have that no one can take your crown a great church a church that is destined for greatness is made of faithful men and women those who hold fast those who fall away they commit what scripture teaches as apostasy you can write that and apostasy are the ones that have fallen away from the grace of god they've denied god's graces how can someone do that right that's called the apostasy and in verse 12 he gives a certain i mean in verse i think it's 11 10 9 he talks about those those who fall away they will now receive a crown but the saints a great church the one that perseveres they receive the crown of greatness and he who overcomes what does he say I will make them I will make them a pillar of the temple of my God you know what I did when I read that I wrote this in my notes because I'm just weird like that I put listen I don't even deserve sorry if this sounds too out there but that's my mind I don't even deserve to be a urinal in the temple of God I don't deserve to be even the ground that people step on and spit on and dirty in the temple of God but yet God says but you I will make a pillar not even a store in the bathroom He's like, no, a pillar cool I'll be the corner part where no one cleans that part I'm, I'm as long as I'm there and he's like I don't want that for you I'm making you a pillar a place of safety he's telling the church you're gonna experience even grace in heaven you're gonna be in a position of support a place of safety and I looked at the word safety and I said isn't that what we live for we go and we work at one place because we want safety for our lives and for our families we move from one house in one neighborhood into another house in another neighborhood because we want safety for our families i wrote this down all that we do may be decided upon this one point safety that we are safe and that the ones that we love are safe we make decisions about going to school and not going to school getting this job and not getting this job going to this church and not going to this church all because of this word safety and the Lord says to the great church one who overcomes with perseverance I will make them safe a pillar forever and I can stand here and say amen because I want to be safe in your presence forever and you will go out no more he says you know what that's called you now own I've given you ownership manager now but one day I'm giving you ownership you own a piece of this you don't have to go anywhere you'll never be excluded from God's presence great church you can dwell there for all eternity it's a place of belonging and then he says this ready I'm gonna write on them the name of God the name of the new city 
my new name. I love that he's giving us all tattoos, you know. Giving you all new tattoos. Don't take it out of context here. Here we go. He's giving me a new name and he's writing it on me. I think he's writing it in the hearts of men. The new name of Christ, who is known as our mediator, redeemer, captain of our salvation. Matthew Henry says, now the believer. Now a new name is risen. Whose banner this conquering believer has enlisted in. Whose conduct this great church has acted upon. Whose example he was encouraged on. And under whose influence he fought the good fight and came off victorious. The imagery of Christ writing a new name upon us is none other than the unity and oneness that this great church will now have with their God. The perfect example, when I married my wife, she was given a new name. Did you know that? She was. And now that's what she goes by. When I first met Nancy, she was a teacher. Well, I know her when we were 15, but I came across to her again. She was known as Miss Vento. V-E-N-T-O. Everything in her classroom said Miss Vento, Miss Vento, Miss Vento. I went in yesterday, Friday, and I went to help her pick up her classroom because the year's over. And I remembered I was going to preach this. And everything is no longer labeled that once was labeled Miss Vento. Now everything is labeled Mrs. Figueredo. And please don't take this out of context. There's not machista or none of that. Just get the scripture. As I'm looking at her room, I said, two things happened here. She now belongs to me. Now me serious. She has my name. But now all of me belongs to her. When we come to heaven, Christ says, I give you the new name of my God. My new name I will give you and write upon you. What he's saying is this. All of you becomes mine now. But as I give you my new name, all of me becomes yours now. If you ever read the Bible, I want everything that is God's. He has a lot of good stuff. I've recognized that when I read scripture I don't have much my answer is I only have much in Christ Jesus my Lord so you know what's going to happen to me one day get ready for this I'm, I'm weird like this like I told, I'm already warning you I'm weird I'm going to walk into the gates and I'm going to say the streets of gold I'm going to lick them and hug them they're mine I'm going to walk up to the mansion the mansion is mine Christ is going to smile and says, yeah, receive my new name. All of you is me and all of mine is yours. And that is a representation of unity. And no one is able to look at my wife. My wife no longer belongs to herself and I no longer belong to myself. We've been made one with one another. And no one is able to break that. That's how it is with Jesus. No one. If you are part of the great church, no one is able to break this. I don't know if I'm talking to the great church. But if I'm talking to the church of greatness, his name is written upon you. That is what, oh man, God's just bringing me stuff. That is why when you stand before his throne one day and you give an account for your life, guess who steps in the way? mediator. He says, wait, wait, wait. Shh, shh. You know what he tells the Father? Lord, he's, he's mine. Lord, she's she's mine. The Father says, welcome. Because that which is my son's is also mine. Lord, as you and I are one, let them become one with me. So that they could become one with what? You. Man, it's good. A church of such greatness perseveres, has found their safety in Christ, belongs. We don't live our lives hoping for things to 
hoping for something that might be there. We live out our lives believing in someone that we belong to. Amen? Amen? And a church of such greatness carries his name. We don't carry our name for our names to be seen or heard or acknowledged or respected. Instead, we carry his name solely with one purpose, that the person of Christ will be glorified through us. I'm going to end with Titus and I'm done. You can stand with me. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, he says, Great church, church of greatness, for the grace of God has brought salvation upon you. How many of you can say amen? Verse 12, we're in Titus 2. And it teaches you now to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lust, that you should live soberly and righteous and godly during this present time, present age. How many people have you talked to and said, I'll receive Jesus later? How many of you have stood here and said, I'll get a little bit more serious for God later? What does scripture say? During this what? Present age. now you look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of your great God and Savior he gave himself for you great church and he's redeemed us from every lawless deed and he's purified us to become a special people passionate for good works and now we speak about these things we don't stay quiet we speak about these things we exhort we even rebuke with all authority Man church, man great church. And while you do this, and while you, while you are this church, let no one ever despise you. Be attractive. Be attractive. So that others may follow. There's so much I want to say. I, I think I should probably be quiet. Be attractive. Be attractive.